Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your many mercies. We can talk all day long about all the ways in which we can engage our culture, the ways in which we can counsel believing and unbelieving hearts. But at the end of the day, it is the work of your Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to hope, our hearts to meaning our minds to understanding. And we pray that even now your spirit would be at work in our own hearts, guiding us further along in this walk of faith as we walk toward the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, to that city whose builder and maker is God, as pilgrims and sojourners in this wilderness. Fill us with hope. Help us to entrust ourselves on our actions, our relationships, our culture, our world, to your sovereign loving hand. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So in eighth grade, I was broken. I was done. I had had enough. I was utterly hopeless. Where in this world could I count on being safe? Where could I go? I couldn't go home. Even now, when I go back to Maryland, I I feel that darkness whenever I go back to that house. Was was it school? I got fights there all the time. At church, I'd go to the youth group, but I was this little tough kid who always liked to pick fights. And man, the little kids in their dress suits, they just hated people like me. Like, what are you you even doing here? Uh, There's often such judgment. But I was sick and tired. I, what did I have to hope for? When had I had ever known in my life something more than what I had experienced? This is why I have so much compassion for those, say, in the inner city or in the rural boonies whose, whose families are just broken. And we're like, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. They have no vision that life can be better than it actually is. No hope that they could have anything more. No no. Belief that love, real love, love that makes you safe, exists. And we tell them to get up. I remember I had a social studies teacher who was like, Stephen, why are you, you are so good in this subject. Why are you failing? I remember thinking, I just, I don't care. I don't care. And it was the summer going from eighth grade and the ninth grade, that things started to really change. 
I was part of this youth group, youth group. Again, there were some kids who were really judgmental. But there were others who loved me. I remember there was one, our, my junior high pastor. He saw the little thug, but he always loved me and just encouraged me. Uh, he was one of the key people in bringing me to know the Lord. He's actually now a pastor at a PCA in Bainbridge. Uh, there was this one annoying girl, this bright-eyed annoying girl named Megan, who would always ask me and my little thug friend, hey, are you guys doing your quiet times? I'm like, why do you care for spending time in the Bible? Like, we're not even supposed to be here. We don't even want to be here. But there's something, I, I wouldn't suggest that as an evangelistic strategy, but there's something the way she appealed to us. Like, we were created in the image of God. Like, this is the same question she would ask people who were walking with the Lord. Uh, there's like a dignity given to us by asking us that question, not just writing us off. But in that summer between 8th and ninth grade, I, I went on this uh, youth camp, this summer camp for a week. And the youth pastor, who we all loved because he had like, been a thug back in the day too before the Lord had taken a hold of his life in that youth group, uh, he challenged us, if you guys are just done with all this, knowing that most of us grew up in broken homes, even in a pretty affluent area, if you're sick and tired of that, and you want the hope that only Jesus can give, I challenge you to go out into these woods after this talk and put these sticks together and tie them. They gave us string to tie two sticks together in the form of a cross. That's your indication that you're ready to give your life to Jesus. I remember doing that. And it hadn't really taken hold, but like, it was genuine. I wanted to know Jesus. Like, if there was any, I wasn't going to get any hope from home. I wasn't going to get any hope from any of these other places. If there was going to be any hope in this world, then it, it had to be found in this Jesus guy that I'd always heard about in Sunday school and in Bible verse songs. And then later that summer, I went on this bike trip with the same youth group. I didn't want to go again, forced to go along. It was from Washington, D.C. to Nagshead, North Carolina, about 400 miles or so. We did it over five or six days, 100 of us high schoolers. And I thought it was so tough. Uh, this little fighter in school, and yet I'm on this bike trip, and I have the little, I have the girls who are my same age just zooming by me on these rural roads in Virginia, ringing their little bells, saying, good job, keep it up, making me feel like a moron. But they also, their encouragement, and counselors as they would bike past or bike in front of me, trying to pull me along or behind me, constantly encouraging me. And I think I mentioned this to you before, I saw an analogy for my sin in that. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm broken. This isn't just about my dad and my older brother. Uh, it wasn't about the hard things that really ha- that happened to my mom, uh, who was holding our family together by the skin of her teeth during those years. I can't do it. If I'm going to have any hope, it has to be, it has to be the Lord. And if I'm going to be saved, it has to be Him alone. And things just started falling into place. I remember calling my parents on a payphone from Jamestown, Virginia, uh, historic town, obviously. Uh, by the way, a payphone, guys, uh, is, is this phone on the wall, and you would just put money into it, and you dial the numbers, and it would actually, you could connect with your home that way. It was amazing. Uh, I remember calling my parents on this payphone and saying, Mom and Dad, something's different. I don't know exactly what it is, but something is different. I feel different. Uh, 
And I just, I could feel that hope starting to grow the next couple days on that trip. By the time we got down to Nagsad, we were staying at this hotel, and we had all this leftover food from the trip. And there were these women who were working work in our rooms, you know, clean them up, like housekeeper ladies. And I remember being like, hey, can I make you guys some sandwiches? Uh, oh, wow, why would you make the sandwiches? Like, well, why not? Uh, I, I felt different. And it, don't, don't let me mislead you. It wasn't just like a momentary thing. I look back now, and I see the fact that I was baptized as an infant as the Lord already laying his hand upon me through those, through those dark years. I didn't see it during those dark years. Uh, the Sunday schools, uh, the Bible verse songs, all these ways in which the Lord was continuing to walk me down those dark years. Uh, when I was like seven or eight, my mom praying the sinner's prayer with me. And nowadays, I think, man, the sinner's prayer is just our formula. Like, we're always, back in that day, everybody was trying to, you know, twist people's arms with the sinner's prayer. Again, I don't think that's usually a very effective way of doing it. But I remember repeating those words after her with tears in my eyes. And it didn't really take hold in a sense during those years. But the hound of heaven had been after me all those years. It's never instantaneous. Uh, don't believe those stories where it just happens in a moment. Uh, the Lord had been pursuing me, hunting me down for a long time. Um, and this is encouragement I've offered some of you as well. If you've had uh, wayward family members or just people you're really aching over. I, if you have loved ones who are contending with the Lord and are right now in rebellion, if they're fighting against the Lord, every single time I'm going to put my money on the Lord in that fight. Every single time. Uh, I've seen the way he comes for prodigals. Over and over and over again, he comes for people like me. I... But he changed my heart, and that I think the final straw was that bike trip. So that by the time, you could see the difference. It's funny, my best friend at the time, uh, not a believer, still not a believer, but he always says, I, Steve, something happened during that time. Like, we left school in eighth grade, and like, you were messed up, and you were trouble. And in ninth grade, you were different. Uh, the first day of school in ninth grade, I remember being in this orientation class, and already that day there was this kid, this popular kid, who looked back at me at one point and was like, you know, what are you going to do? I remember, being, I remember looking at him and smiling and saying, that's just not me anymore. It's just not me. I had a new identity. Now, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Uh, I belonged to Jesus. Uh, that changed everything. Uh, was life easy after that? No. Uh, I used to cuss every other word. Uh, I, I still spend in my, I didn't cuss anymore, but I still send in my speech, yes, very judgmental words. Uh, I used to you know, struggle with anger. I was always angry. I wasn't really angry anymore, but I did struggle a lot with self-righteousness. But I had a new identity. You know, we've talked about how no other identity will work. You know, last week we talked about how Really, nothing explains things like suffering and feelings uh, and brokenness like the Bible does. There's no other sufficient explanation for these things that makes sense of our experience. But also with identity. Nothing else will give you a lasting identity. No other identity will make you feel loved like the one we're given in Christ Jesus. Uh, Whatever gives you your identity can also take it away. You find your identity in your accomplishments, 
and then you get the negative report from your boss, or you get fired, and your boss can take that away from you in a second. Nothing else is lasting. But in Scripture, we're given a new identity. Uh, we're made children of the living God. If anyone is in Christ, that's not that language of union with Christ. In Christ, you are a new creation. A new creation. You are a new person. I feel like an idiot growing up in that home. Hopeless, unwanted, unloved, miserable. But I was adopted into a new family. I had a daddy. Uh, One who didn't draw near to hurt. One who was chaotic and unpredictable. But one who saw me in my sin, instead of turning away, he came to me in the person of Jesus Christ, embraced my suffering, bore my sin on his shoulders, paid for that sin, cloaked me in Christ's righteousness, gave me that spirit of adoption so that I could cry out, Daddy, from the, with utters, utterings and moans and groans, and know that I heard, would hear an answer, that my daddy would hear me. The Bible alone, Christ alone, gives us an identity that doesn't fade away, that makes us feel loved. And talk about family. What about the family we get when we become believers? So all of a sudden, I have a daddy never fails. Though parents may betray, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 27, the Lord will take me in. Though parents may betray, the Lord will take me in. All of a sudden, you have a daddy for life, for eternity. You have a firstborn brother who's always already purchased your salvation. Already God dwells in you. You just can't shake the spirit off. Uh, once saved, always saved. And then you're brought into a family. All of a sudden, the highlight of the week for me was always going to church. I'd like to say I was uh, frequently in the worship service. I didn't get it back then. I didn't understand how important that was. It was virtually always a youth group. But even then, I was getting the word, word of God in like infantile form. I was being fed with the word of God. And there's other youth there who also loved to be fed with the word of God. And that was just always so encouraging. Uh, I had a family. Uh, still a broken family. Uh, but this is God's broken family. I love to tell people, uh, we're all messes. The question is whether you're God's mess or not. Uh, we belong to God. That was exciting. Uh, I had a new family. We have that family in the church. That's why we invite people to church. Don't do it if you're just trying to pawn off your own responsibility to love them in the name of Jesus and try to effectively engage them in all the ways we've talked about. I invite soldiers to church, not as just a one-shot, like, let's get them in here, see if we can get them saved. Uh, I invite soldiers to church because it's here that you can find that true identity. It's here where your suffering can finally find its place in the grid of reality, where your feelings about brokenness finally make sense. I bring them here because they're going to get to hear from Jesus, who says, come you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And they're going to have all these fellow sinner sufferers in need of grace just like them. This is not the broken family they grew up in. Uh, it's anything but. And that's what the church represents to us. So a new identity, a new family. But also, what is it we're looking for? You know, we talked about false ideals. Uh, 
Eternity is not escapism. We don't look to heavenly glory as a sheer escape to get out of this world. Rather, if we know that heaven is our home and imbues all of life with meaning. If heaven is not your home, then you will try to make something else your home. All of a sudden, you're going to be trying to force your family into that paradigm of, you know, 1950s suburbia, uh, the two and a half kids, uh, the white picket fence, and you're going to lay upon them a weight they can't possibly bear, and you're going to ruin it all. You squeeze things so tightly trying to get glory out of them that you crush them. If heaven is your home, then all of a sudden, I'm not looking to my wife to be my savior. I'm looking to love her to the glory of God, of, of our God. She is, in a sense, a means to an end. I love her for who she is, uh, but ultimately, uh, that love has got to be wrapped up into the overarching glory of God. So without those false ideals, with heaven as our true home, we walk like the patriarchs of old, as Hebrews 11 tells us. We live in tents and tabernacles. We are sojourners and pilgrims in this world, looking forward to the city whose builder and maker is God. We recognize there is no promised land here this side of heaven. Uh, that, that experiment failed in the uh, Old Testament. You can read about it. There's a, there's a lot of books about it uh, in the Old Testament. That experiment failed. We cannot earn even an earthly promised land. We had to have Jesus, the new Israel, earn for us a heavenly one. Do you guys see how all of a sudden, if you've been laying bare, all all the ways in which our own experience testifies about the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of our beliefs, uh, the need for the living God. All of a sudden, you can see people actively suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You can help help expose that for them. Help expose uh, why none of these other answers work for sorting out their experience. And all of a sudden, these gospel concepts just kind of fit in. Do you, do you realize now why so many times when we share the gospel, uh, we tend to misfire? We share all these same truths, but without doing all this scalpel work, they just don't land uh, because they're just kind of scattershot. Uh, we haven't exposed the need for these truths. We don't show how exactly they fit. It requires so much patience and gentleness. And that's why, and I'll open it up to some Q&A at the end too. I, I want to transition for a moment uh, to our tone and our posture. I know I talked a little bit about this last year, but I've made so many mistakes trying to share the gospel with people over the years. I'd like to share a few of those with you and just give you a couple of gentle encouragements and reminders. Remember, we did not come to believe the gospel because it just made sense. We didn't do it for intellectual reasons. We didn't do it for emotional reasons. It was the Holy Spirit of God who took our hearts and made us believers in the living God. It is so easy to fall into the trap of thinking, well, if only I just explain this the right way. If only you just follow Pastor Steve's you know, uh, tips for how you engage the culture, you know, we could do it. No. The times that I have failed the worst are when I've believed in the myth of my own strength, my own cleverness. And I break out a lot of these things we've been talking about. I'm like, see? You know, look at all these aha moments. Gotcha. And it, I absolutely fall on my face. 
people just aren't having it. I get myself in trouble. People detect the smugness. People are great at detecting arrogance and self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Uh, it's the times when I am tongue-tied, uh, when I'm painfully reminded of my own sin, when I feel absolutely helpless, that I see God most at work. Uh, be careful. Uh, I don't do the gotcha thing. Uh, don't think you can argue someone or emotionally manipulate someone into glory. Uh, we are foolish, but he is wise. We are weak, but he is strong. We are faithless, but he is faithful. Uh, tied into that, uh, social media. I know it seems tangential here, like it's not really that related or that important, but it is. Uh, our witness on social media on Facebook. Do you know whose comments I delete more than anyone else's on my post? Fellow believers. Fellow believers. Why? Because they say things that are just ugly. I think a lot of people, you know, probably at least 75% of people who follow me on Facebook are unbelievers that I've met, befriended over the years. I think people assume that like most other people, uh, I just have all of my direct friends on Facebook. I just have my little clique of fellow believers. And so that it's okay to make all of our smug remarks, all of our inside wink-wink jokes about, uh, about unbelievers. You shouldn't, and the way people talk then, like, you know, it's because they're apostate, they're unregenerate. Like, there's like, first of all, people don't even know what apostate means nowadays. But we use all these nudge, nudge, wink, wink words that are just smug and ugly. Uh, in fact, I'm going to invent a word right now. It's smugly. Uh, and people see this. I'm deleting comments from fellow believers all the time because it's like they don't realize that unbelievers are constantly reading the things I put on Facebook and the comments. Uh, we don't have to divide who we are from, uh, from the public. We are all public figures now, not just politicians. We are all public figures. As soon as we get on social media... Uh, and you should be unapologetically Christian in that forum. Uh, you guys who are Facebook friends with me, you know I'm unapologetically Christian on Facebook. And yet, I'm not just catering to Christians on Facebook, nor should you. If all you have is a Christian click on Facebook, uh, then of course you're going to talk like that, because now we're just living in our own echo chamber. As Christians, we are called to live out loud in the light of day. Uh, so I would encourage you in that regard, be careful about how you present yourself. That is so harmful, so harmful for our witness. I've deleted an entire post of mine because several Christians are now saying things. And I'm just like, I've got to get rid of the whole thing now. Uh, they've made a mess of it. So that would be a warning to you as well. Social media is a tool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're talking about people being smug and abusive. Yeah. Do you find yourself asking guys, hey, be gentle with them regarding fellow believers, brothers and sisters? Yeah. Yeah. I, I do at times. The thing is, you accumulate all these people over the years, and they're people you want to stay in contact with. Uh, but a lot of these believers have been from churches over the years. Uh, I have, like, you know, Facebook messages to people on the side 
or if they're here with me, I might take people aside. I've encouraged people in that regard before. Uh, especially people I feel like I have a degree of influence with. Family, close friends, where I can do the brother, let's talk, talk. Uh, I've certainly received plenty of those talks over my lifetime. Uh, so yeah, I do that some. Uh, it is good to encourage one another in that way and to point it out if someone's doing it. Uh, so yeah, uh, my mom asked me recently, I, so I just posted recently an article about the rise of polyamory in the church. Like, this is the next sexual frontier. Uh, it's, it's not promiscuity, it's not pornography, and though these things are obviously rampant, but those ships have passed. Sadly, sadly, most people in the church are doing these things, and that's not to belittle the importance of addressing these things. But the big, the big like, sharp frontier right now is polyamory, which is surging in the church just like it is in the rest of society. But I posted a, uh, an article about that recently, about how we can engage that pastorally. And my mom helpfully messaged me on the sidelines. is like, you know, is that the best thing to put up there? You know, you have you know, un- believers, unbelievers, like all these different people reading an article like this, and it's talked about a pastoral approach to it. It's kind of inside baseball. And it's the same reason why I invite soldiers to church, including unbelieving soldiers. Uh, if I can't share it in front of them, then I shouldn't be talking about it in a sense. Like, I shouldn't be like talking in one way in one environment, another way in another. Like, I'm not trying to get one over on my unbelieving soldiers. And so, yeah, come in here and see exactly. I want you to listen to how I tend to engage you. I, I want them to hear all that stuff. I have nothing to hide. So the social media piece, uh, just a warning with that. Uh, patience, gentleness. Jesus is so gentle. I feel like it's so often underplayed. The pastors I look up to the most and the elders I look up to the most, the older folks I look up to the most in, the, in church are those who are gentle. All oh, that sweetness. You guys know what I'm talking about. Like one day, I hope to be as polished off as they are, a lot of the rough edges. Of course, the way they get there is they've had the snot beaten out of them over decades. Uh, but that gentleness, absolutely. Go ahead, brother. I have a question about, um, I heard a wise man once tell me that you don't, you don't use the truth as a bludgeon. Yeah. Because it can be Yeah. Good news doesn't make sense. Yeah. Bad news. Like, talk about the gospel, but it's good news. Good news for what? What do you mean? I'm fine. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I want to say, no, you're not. And here's a five point list about why you're a, a dirtbag. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's obviously not effective. Yeah. Um, now, part of that's pride, uh, you know, and I'll admit that. But uh, have you had any? Right, so, 
perhaps two different issues there, because polyamory right now is incredibly difficult to engage because people no longer have categories even within the church. Yeah, it's it's basically it's it's multiple people in in one relationship. Yeah, and there's all sorts of different arrangements nowadays. Uh, so the stereotypical Christian approach is to just come at them straight and say, "This is sin." Yeah, and it is sin. But what happens when they don't even know what sin is? Like, how are you going to explain that to them? And why are you, why are you starting here? And what about? I mean, it's not just polyamory, right? It's a whole category of sin, sexual sin. Uh, and it goes much deeper than that. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield has uh, great books on this and talks a lot about this. So she, if you know of Rosaria, she was one of the former top queer study scholars in the country. Uh, lesbian up in New York, uh, dean at Syracuse University, wrote columns for major papers up there, one of the huge leaders of the gay rights movement. Uh, well, I, I could tell you about her testimony some other time, but convert in a pretty dramatic way. Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, she has a lot of great podcasts out there now, too. She's now married to an RPCNA pastor. Uh, but incredible story. But one thing, the thing she would always highlight is her root sin was not her homosexuality. It was her idolatry, it was her rebellion against the living God. And you weren't really effectively engaged in her if you weren't getting at that. And so with polyamory, with brokenness, we're so used to coming at people with catechism answers or theological truths, with Bible verses, just without tact, without wisdom, without gentleness. Uh, where exactly do we want to start? The reason why we've been doing all this scalpel work is because we recognize that the need is much greater, the sin is much deeper than these, just these surface issues. And the bad news before the good news, uh, again, that's why we do the scalpel work, because I don't think it takes very long to convince people that they're broken. And then you say, you know what the Bible says that brokenness is? It's sin. You're not just a sufferer. Uh, you're a sinner. And me too. Hashtag me too. Uh, we're all in that same boat. Uh, but this, it does, it's not that hard to convince them of that if, in a sense, you've helped help them make the case, like you've walked alongside them, exploring the wreckage and the carnage, even in the more put-together lives. Uh, but we've got to do that, I think, in that manner, as opposed to just say, you know, in Adam, we all sinned with him and fell in him into a state of sin and misery. Uh, let me talk to you about federal headship. Uh, helpful categories. Uh, but that's not where you, oftentimes we come at people with straight-up theology, uh, whereas we can show them the same theological truth. Think about it. Nowadays, I don't find the Romans' road as effective as the prodigal son parable. All the same truths. You can unpack the prodigal son parable and see all the same truths regarding human depravity and sin, of, God's, of our utter need for grace, of God's utter provision of grace, uh, you can see the whole Romans road, in a sense, written out in the prodigal son parable. And in story form, in a sense, you're showing people the truth before just explaining to people the truth. I think, I think that, that approach uh, is incredibly helpful nowadays. The book of Ruth. I love the book of Ruth. Uh, 
and look at these two broken women. I talk about uh, a new hope. Like uh, Naomi was convinced that God's hand was only against her to afflict her, but then she says, "He has not forsaken the living, and uh, or He has not forsaken uh, the, the the suffering, uh, those the living and the dead." She comes to see through the through the good uh, provision of Boaz, reflecting the heart of God. The fact that God still cares. You see her delivered in this new hope. Uh, Ruth, a new identity. She's not Ruth a Moabite. I am Ruth. Uh, she has a new identity and she stands on it in incredibly uh, trying times. Uh, they arrive in the gardens of Boaz, the fields of Boaz. It looks in so many ways like the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21, 22. Like you see a picture of that heavenly home and how it undergirds them. The fact that they are waiting upon the Redeemer to go do the work while they rest. Uh, just You can explain every part of the gospel in that book through these stories, and people resonate that. Like You take their stories of unbelief and of brokenness and of sin and suffering, and you put them alongside God's gospel at work in these lives in Scripture. And pretty soon they know the concept before they even know the terms. Lindsay didn't know any of the Christian terms when she was a new believer. She understood the concepts. Uh, she understood that Jesus is our Savior, but she didn't know, like, oh, we call the study of this stuff theology. Uh, no, she got the concepts first. Does, does that kind of get at what you're talking about, brother? Yeah. And, um, and, and pointing to that as, as representation of who you really are. You don't really know how wicked and ugly you are apart from all these constraining things that are hemming you in and keeping you going on a path that I mean, looks somewhat straight. Yeah. But for all those things that are constraining you, you would be an absolute monster. Yeah. I feel like it's a lot easier to talk about sin nowadays than it used to be. And not necessarily in public forums, and not necessarily say we are all sinners, like in just that blanket format, or without defining the term and unpacking it. Uh, but back in the day, people we had, you tended to have this impression that we're all pretty good people. Yeah, that's, uh, that's and the, yeah. And nowadays, most of that's been torn down. Right, we try to reinvent ourselves, you know, self-esteem, self-actualization. I create my own meaning. Uh, I can be who I want to be but it all feels so fleeting to most people. And so it's, I don't feel like it's that hard to talk about sin anymore uh, as long as we just don't come in with a bludgeon. And, and I think you raise another good point there, and that is uh, just because it's true doesn't mean it's right or good to say, at least in that, that particular way at that particular time. I think a lot of people hide behind the fact that as long as I am sharing truth, uh, that's all that's needed. It doesn't matter... How it's coming across. Like I think on Facebook, that's what we often see. Well, it's true, 
Uh, and, and, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's the right thing to speak the truth. Yeah. But that that's that's why I'm asking. Well it requires dis- it, Yeah, it requires discernment and wisdom. Yeah. Sometimes uh, you know, you're talking to a random guy or a plane or somebody on their deathbed that's look, looking at you for truth. Like you come in with that sledgehammer and just haul away. Uh, but yeah, it depends on circumstances. Yeah, Pastor Brett. Thank you. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, our passage, you know, have a re- give a reason for the hope that we have, but how are we to do it? Yeah. I was thinking that this is all very, I think, timely and appropriate because uh, it seems like sometimes when we're talking with somebody either if it's family and we care about how they're doing, mm-hmm. or if it's just something that we need, I feel like we have to confront a lot of facts Yeah. Maybe you're just called to. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you're just called to plant a seed. Like maybe you are not the one stop shop for their salvation. And maybe you're called to do as Greg Coco would say plant a pebble in their shoe. So now as they're walking around, something's just nagging at them. Uh, and Jesus, again, great example. He didn't always, like, he, he rested. He retreated to pray all the time. Uh, he would take his time getting to places. 
again, as I'm going through the book of Mark right now, it's amazing how patient Jesus was constantly, you know, going to heal this daughter, this girl who's on her deathbed. And he stops the whole show, stops the whole thing in order to attend to this woman who just touched his robe. And while he's doing that, this girl on her deathbed dies. Like, uh, Jesus has got his own timetable here. It reflects his sovereignty and his love. If I could make it a contention to you guys with regard to bluntness and truth. There is a time to be blunt. Most definitely. We should always be weighing our motives. Am I not talking truth now because I am scared? But conversely, I don't think people often think about this. Am I being blunt now with truth because I'm scared? I think a lot of people come hammering away because they don't really trust the Lord and his timing and his provision. Uh, They're scared what will happen if they are slower, if they are more deliberate, if they are more gentle and careful. In the same way that at times, you know, we start to break out all these arguments. We try to overwhelm people with arguments. Or we start talking as fast as we can or as loud as we can. Or we start getting getting, emotional. And I think a lot of times we are doing these things not because we're being bold and courageous, but because we're scared. And we don't trust the Lord can use ordinary people like us in extraordinary ways, at ordinary times, in ordinary ways. Uh, Again, go back to social media too. I think so much of this is fear. I think uh, we're used to having political and cultural power in this society. We are not yet used to being exiles, being on the margins, and we don't like that. So where we can still exert control, uh, we do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whatever feeble attempt we have, whatever arguments that we do have, yeah. and then we feel guilty about that. We've got to understand that God is sovereign. Yeah. Even our mistakes, while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us and died for us. Even our mistakes, because God is faithful, He'll take those things and use them, teaching us. Oh, I should, I should temper myself. Or I should learn a little better approach. But we've got to trust God's sovereignty. Oh, I should have said something. Well, you would have if God had determined that you're going to say something. It's the guilt thing that gets us. Not necessarily feel going, you know, the the um, fear, but oh, if I just said something, they might have come to Christ. Yeah. You don't bring anybody into the kingdom. Yeah. That's Amen. God's Holy Spirit's business. Amen. So if we can trust in God's sovereignty, do our best to, to study God's word, be gentle and kind and loving as we present the gospel, we won't have to feel guilty. Yeah. And we can trust God's sovereignty in, in all that, even our mistakes. Hey, Ruth, rest. Uh, this man will not uh, stop until the work is completed. Uh, yes, lady in back.
Yeah, it was an army marriage event. Yeah. I said, if either of your dreams are basically excluding each other, yeah, like, yeah, I basically said, no offense to all of you, but your dreams are dumb. Uh, and people are willing to hear that if you crack a smile along the way. Uh, what, what, what choice should I make? Well, are you following the living God? All right, that's step one. I don't care what in the heck you do in this world. Uh, are you walking before the living God? Now, if you're married, what choice should we make? I don't really care. Uh, as long as you're making that choice together. Uh, sin boldly, as Luther told Melanchthon, uh, so much of this is murky and requires spirit-guided wisdom within the confines of Scripture, but you have these higher callings that you know, define all of this. Uh, God is faithful. God is faithful. Uh, every smart, clever thing I've tried to do is generally blown up in my face. Uh, I go into an outreach event at a local pub in Northern Virginia, and nobody ever wants to come to church. Uh, a lot of times the conversations don't go anywhere, but then the waiter starts coming to church. Uh, I'm trying to, you know, we invite people over to Pastor Brett's house after church, or hardly anybody comes. Uh, you know, I try to do these big things, these events. I get upset in our last field exercise because I'm stuck with the medics the whole time, and I'm not able to circulate amongst all my soldiers. But then it's one of those medics who comes to know Jesus. And it wasn't me uh, who walked him over the edge. No, God used someone else to, in a sense, bring him over that threshold. Uh, constantly I'm humbled and chastened in this way. Uh, it is God's work. We've got to trust that. Brothers and sisters, we are now in exile. Welcome to exile. It ain't getting any better. Uh, barring revival, which, you know, we can always pray for revival. Uh, we are now the mission field, the U.S. is. We are exiles. We do not enjoy cultural and political power. So how do we humbly engage in this light? Every time you take an unnecessary stand, you're potentially sucking energy away. Uh, that could be better devoted to serving Christ in his kingdom in humble, ordinary ways. Uh, this is still a work in progress for me and for the rest of us. We're having to relearn what it's like to be exiles in this world. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? Uh, and yet, that is where we are. And again, I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, it's a great time to be a Christian. Uh, we're being reminded of who we are in Christ. Uh, my story is now... You've now heard my story, at least in pieces, of how I came to know Jesus. You guys have all have your own stories, whether they go back to birth or later in life. So all these things we've talked about, start employing them with each other. It starts with community. Before there can be healthy out outreach, there's got to be healthy fellowship. Start here, uh, and then take it out beyond these walls and bring people here into this family. Talk about a new identity, a new hope. Uh, do the slow, patient, gentle, compassionate work. And watch how the Lord moves according to his own sovereign love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Please bless this dear fellowship of believers, this precious corner of your kingdom. Uh, especially in the coming month as I'm away. Uh, Lord, please use this body to support uh, Lindsay and the kids as I'm away too. Help them to be wrapped up and enfolded in this family. I pray for your blessing upon this church. We talk about all these things, again, not because we want to be clever or launch some sort of program or think we are the, you know, have the next great idea that's going to change the face of the church. No, we talk about these things because we desire to be faithful. 
We desire to glorify our King. We desire to grow in your love and to talk to other people about it. We desire to see more knees bow and tongues confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Please prepare our hearts for your worship in this coming hour. Open our hearts, our ears, our eyes, our minds to the beauties of your gospel and what that means for beloved sinners like us, children of the living God, changed from day to day by your Holy Spirit more and more to the image of Christ Jesus. Please bless our pastors here. Uh, Fit their tongues with your word that they might sing of your righteousness. Uh, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice in all of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, just a reminder, I'm leaving this coming Thursday. Uh, I'll be gone for about a month, and then we'll be back for a couple months before we move. Uh, So long. I look forward to the continued fellowship we get to have in the meantime. Uh, Please do uh, give my wife a word of encouragement as you see her uh, while I'm gone. Thank you, brothers and sisters. God bless you.